1: John Walvoord said this concerning this 12th chapter. John Walvoord was uh, one of the foremost experts in biblical end times scenarios called eschatology. He said chapter 12 is the most symbolic chapter in the Bible's most symbolic book. And uh, I would agree with him. This this chapter is full of symbols and, and things of that nature. Some of them are defined for us right within the chapter. And other things, we have to rely on the Old Testament scriptures to get an understanding of what those things are.
0: Say Hi everyone, and welcome to our Bible study on Truth in Christ Radio with Senior Pastor and Teacher Rob Kellogg. Our scripture says, Now a great sign appeared. This is the first of seven signs that John relates and is described as a great sign. In Revelation chapter 12, 13, and 14, the main figures of the Great Tribulation are described, and this great sign introduces the first of the seven. The first is the woman, representing Israel. Because John plainly said this is a sign, we don't expect the woman to appear literally on the earth. God will use this sign to communicate something to John and to us. Now let's turn to chapter 12 and follow along with Pastor Rob.
1: Revelation chapter 12. The title of this morning's message is The Woman, the Child, and the Dragon. And chapter twelve is in this uh, handful of chapters in the book of Revelation, starting with chapter ten, going all the way through chapter fifteen. And these passages, these chapters, are what we call parenthetical chapters. They're called that because they don't really advance the chronology very at all. But the Lord gives us these chapters to kind of introduce us to characters that are coming in the in the in, in the end time scenario, and also giving us information on things that are going on during those specific times, roughly, okay? And so uh, this chapter that we're going to be looking at this morning, chapter 12, is one of those chapters where, if you remember, a couple Sundays ago, we started this seventh trumpet judgment, which, as you know, that was uh, in chapter 11, beginning in verse 15, was the seventh trumpet judgment. It's also called the third woe. And so now we are in this period where we're at the midpoint of the tribulation, getting ready to finish the last three and a half years of, of world history before Jesus comes back physically to the earth for a thousand years in the millennial reign of Christ. And we will come back with him. And I'm really excited about that. I can't wait for that. But I'm looking more forward to the rapture, which could happen at any time. The Bible's very clear about that. There is imminency. And so we look forward to that. And so as we look at uh, chapter 12 this morning, it's going to be very, very interesting, very interesting. Before we even get into, I, I find this chapter kind of interesting because chapter 13 is going to introduce us to two of the characters in the Great Tribulation that are perhaps the most significant, other than Jesus, obviously, but he's in glory. But that is the beast, who we call the Antichrist and the false prophet. Those two characters are introduced to us in chapter 13. And I find it interesting that before these two characters are introduced, we find here in chapter 12 the one who is really the father of them, the father of lies, who is Satan. We see his history, we see his program, what his intention has been from the very beginning, since the inception of man and certainly since Israel became a nation. And you'll notice that as we read this chapter, there's nothing in here about the church at all. This is all about Israel. And why is that? Because after the church is removed, we are in glory with Jesus. This time on the earth is about those who have rejected Christ, and God is going to deal also again with his people. The people of Israel. Right now they live in unbelief. They don't believe that Jesus came the first time. And it's going to make it more insidious because when the, when the Antichrist comes into power, they're going to openly receive him because he's going to be able to broker some kind of agreement to allow them to have their temple, and they're going to be totally ecstatic. Only the Messiah could do that, or so they think. And so this chapter has nothing to do with the church at all. In fact, the church is not even mentioned till the end of the book. Because the Church is not what is what's happening, the Church is raptured, the church is in glory while this seven year period of wrath of the wrath of God is going on on the earth. This is a very interesting book. John Walvord said this concerning this twelfth chapter. John Walvord was uh, one of the foremost experts in biblical end times. Scenario. It's called eschatology. He said chapter 12 is the most symbolic chapter in the Bible's most symbolic book, and uh, I would agree with him. This, this chapter is full of symbols and, and, and things of that nature. Some of them are defined for us right within the chapter, and other things we have to rely on the Old Testament scriptures to get an understanding of what those things are. And aren't you glad that God just doesn't—he uh, just doesn't leave you in the dark? But it does require you to go looking elsewhere in the Old Testament to find out what some of these things mean. You know, God means what He says, and He says what He means. When He needs to define something for us clearly, He'll just do it. He did that with the disciples. Jesus, remember, was speaking to his disciples, and they said, "You know," um, they said, "You know," Jesus told them that uh, Lazarus was sleeping. Or that he was dead. (laughs) Or he said he was sleeping. And they're like, well, Lord, if he's sleeping, he does well. And he's like, no, guys, he's dead. And so he waited. He waited. But he's very clear on what he means, and he means what he says. I don't think we need to allegorize anything. We don't need to overly spiritualize anything. If we read it the way it's meant to be read, things are much clearer than if you do those other things. So I would encourage you to read the Bible that way, unless it lends itself to something else. And the context will make that very clear if you read it and think about it. There are seven personages that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, and we're going to see them in chapters 12 and 13. We're only going to look at the first five today. Uh, the, the woman clothed with the sun. This chapter speaks of a woman clothed with the sun. It speaks of a red dragon. Uh, the male child... It speaks of the archangel Michael, the offspring of the woman. It speaks of the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth. And all of these things are going to be revealed to us either in the chapters that we are in or in other parts of the Old Testament. And so let that be an encouragement to you. It has often been said that the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed and the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. And certainly in chapter 12 this morning that is the case. We will see that. Let's look right at it. Verse 1. It says now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. And when you read this, you're thinking, "What is this all about?" It's certainly symbolic here. Certainly symbolic. And a sign is something that is a a mark or a token, something that is uh, uh that's about to share an important truth. And um, this word occurs seven times in the Book of Revelation, and. Most uh, five of those times, it's in the connotation of evil, in the context of evil. So signs coming upon the earth, five out of the seven times, it's in the context of evil. But two of them are referred to that are certainly not in that context, and one of them is the one we're looking at right now. This great sign, the Bible says, not just a sign, but a great sign, and that is the woman. And we'll find out who this woman is. And also, in chapter 15, verse 1, it gives us another sign. And this is the seven angels that are going to be pouring out their wrath, the, the, the bowls of wrath, or the vials of wrath, depending on what version of the Bible you're reading. These seven last plagues that are going to come on the earth... But all other instances refer to signs either concerning the false prophet, who we'll be talking about next, next couple weeks, or Satan or the beast, who we often call the Antichrist. And yes, there is a demonic trinity. Did you know that? As we have God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, we also have a demonic trinity. See, Satan doesn't, he's not original at all. He only mimics that which God does. That's all he can do. There's no creativity and plus, he wants to deceive. So we have Satan, we have the beast or the Antichrist, and we also have the false prophet. And they all function very similar to one another. And so we're going to see this, this great sign, it says in verse 1 here: it says, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. This woman, by the way, is not Mary, it's not Jesus' mother. The woman who is pictured here could not be Mary because as we'll see later on in the chapter, it speaks of the woman being persecuted by the devil and being given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness and be nourished for three and a half years, a time, times, and a half a time. Now Mary, and, and, and again, this is speaking of a yet future event, future events, and yet Mary has passed away nearly 2,000 years ago. So this is not about the Virgin Mary. It's speaking of events yet future to us. And this woman is the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, and perhaps more specifically, the believing Jews in the Great Tribulation, not in, in, uh, including but not limited to the 144,000 that we read about in chapter 7. Those who were sealed, 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes. And notice that she was clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of 12 stars. And in order for us to understand this symbolism, we need to have, we need to read the Old Testament, uh, specifically the book of Genesis. And so if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. I'm going to read it for you, but you can turn there because we'll spend a few moments here. We're just going to look at the first 11 verses because we need to identify who this woman is. I told you it was Israel, but I want to prove it to you. Because anything in the Bible, we need to use, let the Bible be its best commentary, because it is. Let the Bible be its best commentary. In Genesis chapter 37, remember it was Jacob, or Joseph, excuse me, in all of his dreams that he dreamed. Notice what it says. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. And this is the history of Jacob. And Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report on them to his father. Verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children because he was the son of his old age. And also he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. And so he said to them, "'Please hear this dream which I have dreamed.' And there they were, binding the sheaves in the field. So he's unfolding this dream to his twelve brothers. Then, behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright." And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, Shall we indeed, shall you indeed reign over us, or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And that's one of the reasons why they sold him into slavery in Egypt. They, after hearing this dream, they were just at their wits' end. We're going to bow to you, daddy's favorite. You can, you can hear it. It happens every day, doesn't it? Oh, teacher's pet. Daddy's favorite. And then he tells them a truth. Which is true. And they hate him for it. Then he dreamed another dream, verse 9, and he told it to his brothers. He says, look, I've dreamed another dream, and it gets even worse. He says, and this time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars bowed down to me. And so he told his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him. So Jacob rebuked his son Joseph and said, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. And so we see very clearly here, by reading this chapter, that the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars are nothing more than Jacob and Rachel and his eleven brothers, which comprise what? Israel. Israel. And we're going to see that this woman... It says, then she being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain. Actually, I, I got ahead of myself there. This is the nation of Israel. Um, this woman is Israel. You remember in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, this is a one we have on all of our Christmas cards. But notice Isaiah speaking to the Jews, and he says, For unto us, unto us, a child is born, unto us Jews. A child is born unto us, a son is given. Notice, and the government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And he goes on, and and this is about the nation of Israel. In John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also of the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This is all speaking of the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, their scriptures. It all came from them. The very Messiah came from the Jewish line. He could have picked any race, but he chose that which was most insignificant. Jesus said to them, he says, you know, I didn't choose you because you were this great company of people, this great nation. I chose you because you were least among all the nations. And I love the way the Lord does that. He always chooses the underdog. He never chooses that which thinks it's that great. He never chooses that which is mighty. He always uses the weak things to confound the wisdom of the world. And also in Hebrews chapter 10, the author says, Therefore, when he, Jesus, came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings, sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. The entire Old Testament was about Jesus Christ, the Word of God, coming through the Jewish race, coming through the Jewish line. And finally, we see in John chapter 5, Jesus speaking to the Jews, and he said to them, He says, You search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. And the only scriptures they had at that time was the Old Testament. Specifically, Genesis through through Malachi, or even uh, some of those other books might not even have been written yet. And so it speaks of... The nation of Israel. Now go on to verse 2 there. It says, And then this woman being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now this nation of Israel, this woman that's portrayed, she cries out in labor and she's in pain to give birth. And, you know, when we look at this, it's really amazing because all throughout the Old Testament, we see scriptures, prophecies spoken of when Jesus would come into the earth, how he would come into the earth, through whom he would come into the earth. And there's very explicit details, very explicit details. And even before Jesus was born, the nation of Israel had already undergone great oppression, great uh, oppression. In Matthew, we find Herod the Great wanting to destroy him before he was even born, having heard the news that there was a prophecy that the Messiah would come through the line of Judah and from Bethlehem. So what does Herod do? This demon-possessed, I believe, man who was completely power-hungry, he decides to snuff out all the children two years old and younger in the town of Bethlehem and the surrounding areas to make sure that he takes out this king who was to be born, that, uh, that we just read. This king, this everlasting father, this prince of peace. That was his desire. But Israel has always been in this time of, they've always been in pain. And up until Jesus' uh, birth, they went through untold agony all throughout their history. All throughout their history. Israel has endured a lot in the Holocaust in, in the 1940s. A Nazi Germany, over 6 million Jews were exterminated in gas chambers and ovens and mass graves. In 1948, they endured countless suicide bombings. And, and even uh, recently, it, it slowed down quite a bit because they built, um, they built electric fences, electronic and electric fences, to keep those suicide bombers from bombing, and that's done wonders. You remember back in the '90s and the early 2000s, there was all kinds of suicide bombings on buses and everything. It was happening a lot, but you know, um, but we see Israel coming as a nation in 1948, the War of Independence. The very moment that they declared themselves a nation, immediately, immediately there were there was a war. All the Arab nations, including Egypt, came against them on the very next day that they that they became a nation. There was the Sinai Campaign in 1956, the War of Attrition in 1968, the Six Day War in 67, the Yom Kippur War in 73, the Lebanon War in 82, the Gulf War in 91, the Second Lebanese-Lebanon War in 2006. And ever since then, we've had president after president, United States presidents, trying to broker a deal. And it's a futile thing. It's a noble concept. They've tried so hard to have peace deals and offer two-state solutions. And many of those deals want them to give up their, the Golan Heights. If you've never been to Israel, it's a wonderful uh, time to go. Go this next year if you can in March. But the Golan Heights is a strategic place. It's up on a mountain, and it's right on the the border of Syria and Lebanon. It's a very strategic place. Israel should never give that up, because then you have the enemy's tanks pointing down to you in the valley. Not a good idea if you're a person of strategy. And yet, so many have tried to get them to give up that land, give up that land. Somebody trying to pressure them, even presidents. Thankfully, our president has not done that. He understands the things that are important to them, and he's not going to pressure them to give that up. He's going to help them. So Israel has always had to fight. And this little piece of land about the size of New Jersey, this little piece of land is theirs by divine decree, by God. God gave it to them, and Satan and the enemies of Israel, whom he has inspired, want it as well, and they will fight to the death for it. And I find it interesting that I'll, although it's mentioned 500 times, at least in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, Jerusalem is not mentioned in the Quran at all. That's the, that's the Muslim's holy book, the Quran. Jerusalem's not mentioned, and yet it's something they hold to be so reverential, yet it's not even included in their book kind of makes you scratch your head, doesn't it? Because it belongs to the Jews. It always has. And it always will. In fact, I love what it says in Leviticus, chapter 25, verse 23. Who does that land belong to? It belongs to God. It says, the land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. This is the Lord speaking. You are strangers and sojourners with me. And then in Genesis, chapter 12. When God spoke to Abraham to bring him out of the Ur of the Chaldees, the Lord finally appeared to him and showed him all these things and gave him this wonderful covenant. And He said, he appeared to Abraham and said in verse 7, to your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. It belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything on the earth belongs to him. And all he wanted was this state, this country about the size of New Jersey. This is my land. You can have the rest of it. All I want is this, and I've got a plan for that land. And boy, the devil goes, if that's important to you, it's important to me. And I'm going to thwart every attempt I can have to have anything going on there that's of any value. And the devil knows the Bible better than all of us. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what's coming. He studied the book of Revelation. He knows it, folks. He knows this time. Is can you imagine how unnerving that must be? That in the end, you lose. No matter what. There is no one more powerful than God. If you're being oppressed, if you're being beaten up, if you're being um, oppressed by the devil, struggling with sin, guess what? His day is coming. Guess what, folks? He loses. And I'm looking forward to the day when the nations, everyone will look upon him narrowly. They'll look upon him like this. Is that the one who caused all the problems? That's his end. And I'm looking forward to that day. I'm really looking forward to that day but Israel has always been in pain.
0: I'm sorry, that's all the time we have for today, but please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our journey through the book of Revelation. Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday at area code 585-586-3140.